Father, thank you, Lord, for this chapter of Scripture. And I briefly ask you, Father, that as I speak tonight, you'll be in control, not only of my mouth and of what's said, but also in the hearts of those who are listening, Father, that they would take in only what you desire that they would know, the truth and nothing more and nothing less, Father. And that that, this truth, Father, would just raise our minds to how awesome you are, how much power, wisdom and might you have, how nothing in this creation is outside your control. And let that knowledge, Father, be something that comforts us and challenges us as we seek to live for you here now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight in Daniel 9, I want to open with some history briefly to help set the stage for what's going to take place in the chapter. Part of that history is in what we've already studied from the book of Daniel. Part of it will be history even outside the book. Starting in Daniel, in chapter 2, we were introduced to God's plan to place Israel under Gentile authority during an age called the age of the Gentiles. Prior to the start of that age, though, prior to the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar over Israel and Jerusalem, Israel as a nation was the chief nation on earth in its day. It was the superpower of its day. Under David and later under Solomon, the nation of Israel rose to the peak of its power and no one challenged that power. No Gentile nation had ever challenged them since that time. After Solomon died, though, a number of the tribes of Israel elected to rebel against the rule of the kings of Judah, and they split away, trying to form a separate kingdom in the northern part of of what was Israel. Ultimately, the Lord brought discipline to those rebellious tribes, that illegitimate nation, and did so at the hands of a Gentile army, the Assyrians. Meanwhile, in Judah, along with Benjamin and Levi, in the southern part of what was Israel, they remained for a time under God's protection until the days of Daniel. By the time Daniel was serving in the Jewish court, Judah was equally due judgment. The Lord declared, in fact, that if he had been willing to judge the northern tribes for their sin, how could he overlook Judah's sin? So he sent prophet after prophet to Israel, to Judah that is, warning them of the coming judgment. And in the end, the people of Judah failed to heed those warnings. If Judah would ignore the Lord's warnings spoken through prophets, they could not ignore the message when it came at the point of a Babylonian sword. So the Lord called for Babylon now to come into the land and to do his bidding in judging Israel. And the nation of Israel then fell under judgment for failing to keep the old covenant, the covenant given through Moses. They were no longer then to receive the Lord's protection. But as Daniel explained back in chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord had sentenced Israel to remain under Gentile oppression for far longer than just Nebuchadnezzar's time. The Babylonians, in fact, were just the first of multiple Gentile kingdoms who were going to be given permission by God to capture the city of Jerusalem and have control over the temple and the people of Israel. The Lord was no longer going to defend them against Gentiles as he once had done under David and Solomon, but rather he was going to subject them to Gentiles. He sent wave after wave. First the Babylonians, we learned, then the uh, Persians, then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. And then even after the Roman Empire faded away centuries later, the remnants of that empire still continue to subjugate Israel as a part of this long age that God instituted. Daniel, as we know, foresaw all of this future for his people. And it left him astounded or exhausted or speechless, or as we heard last time, sick for days in chapter 8. Nevertheless, what Daniel did not see in all of that was how long all of that was going to last. The length of time. His visions 
always included a positive outcome. So he knew they were not ultimately to result in the destruction of his people. Far from it. His visions always ended, as you remember, with the promised one, the Messiah, coming to set up a kingdom, a Jewish kingdom here again. A Jewish Messiah, after all. It's his kingdom. So it's a Jewish kingdom in that sense. That kingdom would always come at the very end of the age of the Gentiles. So in that day, Israel was going to receive all that they had been promised in the covenant God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Daniel's prophecies, I think you could say, were bittersweet to him. They presented this troubling premonition of dark times ahead for, the, for his people. But that dark period eventually gave way to a time of glory for Israel. But as I said, Daniel never understood, at least in anything he's seen so far, how long the nation would have to wait during that period of darkness in order to get to the good stuff. So given the happy ending, it's only natural for us to find Daniel assuming if not hoping, that this period of darkness was going to be really quick. That it wasn't going to have to last that long and that he would just get into the kingdom soon thereafter. But unfortunately for Daniel, the age of the Gentiles is not a short-lived period of human history. It runs for a very long time, certainly much longer than Daniel's lifetime. Furthermore, the age proceeds through various stages. And, and this is important for tonight, it overlaps other prophetic events that God has revealed through other prophets. The people of Israel will go in and go out to various situations, including bondage and exile, and then a regathering, and then an exile again, and then another regathering. There is a, a tempo, a certain cadence to this period called the age of the Gentiles. It's not a one-way trip. And the Lord told Israel through another prophet, specifically Jeremiah, that Judah would be held in captivity in Babylon, and then later Persia, for a certain specific period of time. And then after that time, Israel would be permitted to return back into the land where they could then go about rebuilding their temple. And yet, they would still be doing all of that under Gentile authority. So that's the background. Now as we open up in chapter 9 of Daniel, you're going to find Daniel, interestingly, reading this very prophecy I mentioned out of Jeremiah. Daniel 9, let's start with verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasurus, of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. All right, so once again, Daniel starts by dating his chapter by a reign of a king. This time it's Darius, son of Hasurus. Darius was, as you may remember, the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire, which followed Persia's conquest of Babylon. You may remember that the feast of Belshazzar in chapter 5 occurred the night that that Babylonian king fell to the Persians. Remember, so chapter 5 was at the end of the Babylonian time. And then in chapter 8, that went backward in time to an earlier time, to the third year of Belshazzar's reign, so it backed up. And now we see a chapter that happens at the beginning of the king that replaced Belshazzar. So this chapter happens after chapter 5 and long after chapter 8. At this time we find Daniel, as it says, reading Jeremiah's scroll. So now let's talk about Jeremiah for a minute. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. He was already about 40 years old and he was a known prophet within Israel when Daniel was taken into exile. But Jeremiah was in the same area of Judah 
But he was never sent to Babylon like Daniel was. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar allowed Jeremiah to choose for himself where did he want to go, stay here or go to Babylon. And the reason he gave the prophet that opportunity is because the prophet had been advocating prophetically to the kings of Israel that when Babylon came, they had better submit to the authority of Babylon. And of course, the kings of Israel were not willing to do that. The kings of Judah were not. So when it finally happened, Nebuchadnezzar saw him as an ally. So Jeremiah stayed in Judah rather than go into exile. He continued to prophesy until 586 BC. In that year, he was forced against his will to go south into Egypt by Jewish rebels who took him with them after they were fleeing Babylon, having tried to insurrect against Nebuchadnezzar. He finished his prophecies while in Egypt, eventually died there, probably about the time Daniel was in his late 30s or 40s is when uh, Jeremiah passed away. That's his little short history. Now, chapter 9. We find Daniel reading Jeremiah's writing. And this is such a curious scene for numerous reasons. Seeing Daniel studying Jeremiah demonstrates that Jeremiah's writings were understood to be prophetic from the beginning. Daniel says as much, right? And furthermore, Daniel goes on to interpret what Jeremiah said literally. This is very important for hermeneutics, by the way. It says that if Daniel himself saw the 70 years of Jeremiah in literal terms, then we have no reason to do anything else. Also, Daniel's possession of Jeremiah's scroll proves that Israel as a nation took great care to preserve and to honor and to share that word as the word of God amongst themselves, even as soon as it was available. Somehow this book has made its way intact from Judah or maybe from Egypt all the way to Daniel in Babylon. That just gives you a sense of how careful Israel was with the word of God. Finally, it reminds us that even a prophet still needs the revelations of other prophets if they are to understand the whole counsel of God's word. That is, that God revealed portions and parts to men until the whole counsel of his word was available in what we have today. And then there's just one more curiosity in this scene, and this is the curiosity that sets up the whole chapter. And the curiosity is that despite being a prophet himself, Daniel misinterprets the meaning of what he reads in Jeremiah's writings. In verse 2, Daniel notes that he had come across, he says, the number of years that God declared Israel and Jerusalem would experience desolation. Now, he's reading from Jeremiah 29. Let's go there. And this is what he was reading. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Alright, so that's what Daniel was reading. And in the passage, he learns that the length of time that the Lord intended to hold Judah in captivity in Babylon and now Persia would be 70 years. And this was news for Daniel. He had not received this detail himself. He had not seen Jeremiah since he had left Jerusalem. So it required that he have the word of God from Jeremiah in order for him to understand this truth. And as he comes to this passage, Daniel suddenly realizes that it's been 70 years since he came into Babylon. That the time limit on Israel's judgment and captivity has come up. The Lord has told Israel that he didn't have evil intentions toward them. He had good intentions toward them. He didn't intend to destroy them. He had good plans for their welfare. And I should add as an aside, this verse is often quoted out of context and then applied to any group of people we may care to appoint it to, including ourselves. 
That is terrible hermeneutics. God didn't write this to the United States of America or to anyone else. He wrote it to Israel only in the context of their captivity in Babylon, period. That verse has no applicability to any other situation or any other group of humanity. That is not to say God doesn't have good things planned for you. It's just saying that verse ain't talking about you. Okay, moving on. This is encouragement for Daniel that the Lord's judgment was for discipline, not for the destruction of his people, and that there would come an end. So he says in Jeremiah that after I've had you in exile for 70 years, I'm going to send you home again. And you're going to go back to your land, and once you're there, the Lord's going to show favor again to them. Their fortunes are going to be restored. And in fact, everything happened historically just as Jeremiah wrote. Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, all of those books record how Cyrus, the king of Persia, releases the exiles after Cyrus comes to power and lets them return to Judah so they can rebuild the temple. And that group did, in fact, a a remnant of them, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, do go back after 70 years and begin to rebuild the temple. And in the centuries that followed, Israel enjoyed a measure of prosperity in their land, just as God said they would. However, the people of Israel did not see an end to Gentile oppression over them or Gentile trampling over the city of Jerusalem, even though they were restored back to their city. The age of the Gentiles continues, just as Daniel said it would. And so therefore, even though Israel was in their land, they still endured Gentile resistance. Even as they build the temple, there are Gentiles trying to stop them from doing it and stop them from building the wall. In later years, Persian kings still threatened Israel from time to time. And then after Persia, Alexander the Great rolled in and conquered the city. And then Greek generals desecrated the temple. And then there came Rome and so on and so forth. So brief respites from Gentile oppression do not mean that the age of the Gentiles is over. It's just a lull in the activity. We know what brings it to an end. We've already been told that. Jesus' second coming is the only thing that brings this period to an end. So any temporary period of peace in the meantime means nothing. It just means we're waiting for the next wave. But friends, this distinction was completely lost on Daniel. So as he reads this account, he assumes that the end of their exile, this 70-year period, is also the end of the entire age of the Gentiles. He thinks they're one and the same. Now remember, he's already heard visions of what follows after the age of the Gentiles. Particularly, he knows that it means the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Messiah. So he's excited. And in verses 4 through 14, he begins to pray on behalf of his people in what he believes Scripture requires. Now, many commentators, at least some I've read, have assumed that what Daniel is doing now in this prayer is prompted by what he read in Jeremiah's book. Because if you remember back in Jeremiah here, 29, 12 through 14, the Lord said that when Israel calls upon him in prayer, he will listen and he will restore their fortunes, right? So it appears at first as though Daniel is trying to take advantage of that promise. But that conclusion doesn't make sense. And here's why. Jeremiah says that after the people have been returned to Jerusalem, they will pray. Not before. Jeremiah is referring to a different prayer moment. And you have this prayer moment recorded elsewhere in Scripture. This is the moment when the people of Israel, who have returned under Zerubbabel, are standing at what was remaining of the temple, the foundation, and they all pray together to the Lord that he would restore the temple. And they pray a confession of their sins. And they pray that he would honor their desire to come back into the covenant. I mean, it's a very important moment. You can go read it in Ezra. But that's the prayer that's being spoken of here in Jeremiah. After the exiles have returned. 
And Daniel knows this, by the way. I'm not saying Daniel was confused either. Daniel understands that's not the prayer, but yet he still prays. So he's invoking a different promise. He's going elsewhere in the Bible, what would be the Old Testament, to a different promise of God from a different prophet, and he's trying to take advantage of that promise. We'll explain that as we look at the content. The content of his prayer actually shows us what promise he's trying to claim. Let's look at the prayer. Verse 4 through 11 of Daniel 9 is where we go next. And this is the beginning of the prayer. He says, I pray to the Lord my God and confess and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his covenants, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes and our fathers because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. First, notice in verse 4, Daniel says he prayed and confessed. That second word is important because Jeremiah's book never indicated a confession was required. If you go back and look at Jeremiah 29, it doesn't say confess anything. Yet Daniel feels compelled to offer a confession. In fact, as you examine the prayer, it's nothing but one long confession. And as you scan down the content of the confession, it'll become clear that Daniel's thinking of another place. He's not thinking of Jeremiah's prayer. He's thinking about a prayer requirement found in the law of Moses given to Israel in the Old Covenant. And you see this by noticing the major ideas that are in the confession. For example, verse 5, he confesses on behalf of the entire nation. He says, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. In fact, throughout the prayer, he speaks of we. So he's speaking on behalf of the nation. He's attempting to offer a national confession of prayer, which a national covenant, like the old covenant, would expect. Next, Daniel confesses that the people of Israel have broken the covenant, the one they entered into at Mount Sinai, and they, he says in verse 5, the nations turned aside from the commandments and the ordinances of that law, and they didn't heed the prophets. And in verses 7 through 10 on this screen, he contrasts the Lord being righteous in keeping the covenant with Israel being unfaithful. But here's the thing. The Lord being righteous and faithful means he kept his word to punish them for their unwillingness to keep their word to do as he asked. And then particularly, notice Daniel describes the way the Lord drove Israel into the nations as a punishment for unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to that covenant, in other words. The old covenant, friends, stipulated that Israel would be scattered and that that would be one of the penalties they would expect if they failed to keep the covenant. So even in their punishment, the Lord has been completely faithful to his word. And then down at the bottom, verse 11, Daniel says, Indeed, the people of Israel have transgressed the law, turned aside, and notice he says, and this is important, a curse has been poured out on them according to the oath found in the law of Moses. This is our confirmation that he's not talking about Jeremiah's prayer now. Daniel's on to something much bigger. 
He thinks Israel has reached the moment when the old covenant of Israel is about to be fulfilled, completed. In the old covenant the Lord made with Israel, he told the nation they had to obey him in everything that was written in the law, right? In fact, most of the law is dedicated to explaining what all of the rules are, all the commandments, all the ordinances, right? But there is no humanly possible way that a sinful human being can keep all of those requirements perfectly. And yet that was the expectation that was put on Israel. And then, in a couple of places within the law itself, the Lord will give a summary of his expectations in this covenant with Israel. One of those places is Leviticus 26. It's this chapter that Daniel's thinking about when he begins to pray. And I'm not going to do the whole of the chapter tonight, but let me summarize some key points. It begins this way in Leviticus 26.2. It says this, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Now I'm pausing there because to the people of Israel, the Lord said that they could receive many blessings if they could keep the covenant, if they could keep all of his commandments. And I stopped at verse 4. That's just the first of the blessings. If you just ran further down this chapter, you see a long list of blessings that he was willing to give the nation if they could keep the covenant perfectly. Remember, this is a national covenant. It's not made between one person and God. It was made between a nation of people and God. So whatever comes of the covenant will affect the entire nation for better or worse. They all keep it, they all get the blessings. But if not all keep it, then all get the curses. And yes, there are curses. The Lord says from verse 2 through 13, here's all of the good things. But then at verse 14, the tone changes dramatically. And this is what you see at verse 14. He says, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments... If instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. And he begins to list a bunch of bad things. He starts with appointing a sudden terror and consumption and on and on. From verse 14 to verse 39 now, the Lord lists calamity after calamity, curse after curse that will befall Israel as a nation for their failure to keep this covenant. And if you go scanning down the list at some point, if you choose to, you're going to notice it's dramatic, it's scary, and it's the wrath of God poured out. The nation's going to bear great tragedy over their history because of their inability to keep a law that they freely agreed to try to keep, which was a very foolish agreement. As Daniel said, reading Jeremiah, he must have started to reflect on all the calamities Israel had experienced over the prior 70 years in exile. And then as he remembers that list of calamities that came upon Israel in that 70-year period, uh, he must have noticed how many of them sounded similar to what he remembers reading in Leviticus 26. And so he must have concluded that this entire period of 70 years is that period promised in which all of the calamities would come. He's compressing all of what Leviticus says into 70 years, but without any more knowledge from God, you really can't blame him. He wouldn't have had any idea how long it was supposed to last. And frankly, what Israel's endured for 70 years is pretty awful stuff from the way they were carried off and from some of the things they've had to do while they've been in captivity. And in particular, Daniel draws a connection then between one passage of Leviticus 26 and this 70-year period that Jeremiah is talking about. Here's the passage he drew the connection to. 
In verse 31, it says this, I will lay waste your cities as well, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your smoothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Okay, that's exactly what's happened to them, right? Then he says, Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. While you are in the enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbath while you were living on it. Here's what that's talking about. Israel was supposed to leave their farmlands fallow on every seventh year. So they would farm their land every year and get a harvest every year. But on the seventh year, they're not supposed to go out and plant. They're not supposed to harvest. And to prepare for that year, the Lord would, in, would promise to give them a double return on their harvest in the sixth year every year. And they'd have double what they need. They could store it up. And then on the seventh year, they didn't have to work. And they had that extra food to carry them through till they could start farming again after the seventh year. It's a great deal. Only, instead of obeying that commandment to honor the land Sabbath, it's called, Israel got greedy. So they decided they would just farm on the seventh year anyway. But here's the thing. God is faithful. So God kept giving the double portion on the sixth year, even though Israel was not faithful to rest the land on the seventh. And Israel got, basically, eight years worth of harvest over seven years. And they loved that. And so they just kept doing it. The Lord allowed that sin to continue for nearly 500 years. He's long-suffering. So that eventually, the nation owed the Lord 70 of those Sabbath years. 70 years in which the land didn't rest. That's why they spent 70 years in exile. That's what we just learned in Leviticus. He says, I'm going to put you in another nation. I'm going to leave you there for the number of Sabbaths you owe me for the land. Daniel has understood this. But remember, this statement is coming out of Leviticus 26. Now, Leviticus 26 is talking about a lot of other stuff, too. A much bigger plan of curses, of penalties. This is just one of them. But Daniel jumps to the conclusion that the 70 years that Israel has spent in Babylon is not only payback for the 70 Sabbaths that the land missed, it is the sum of all of the penalties in Leviticus 26. And if that were true, then it would have meant that at the end of that 70-year period, Israel would have seen the restoration of the kingdom, all the things that God foretold in the statue and in the beasts. Look at what Daniel says next. You'll see confirmation that this is what's on his mind. In 12 through 14, Daniel finishes his prayer this way. Thus, he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us. Notice this. To bring us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like that was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses... All this calamity has come to us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. And therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. That phrase there, that this is something that has never been done under heaven before to Jerusalem, that's actually a phrase taken out of Leviticus which talks about how great the calamities are going to be that God is going to pour out on Israel. But here's the thing. The, the stuff Daniel saw, that just scratches the surface of what God has planned for Israel. He just didn't have the perspective to understand that, not in his own day. And so, Daniel takes a step too far here in his interpretation. He begins to assume that all the calamities of Leviticus 26 are now fulfilled, right? And so he believes now it's time to return from exile. 
Why is all this important? Well, because of one more thing in Leviticus 26. At the end of the curses in Leviticus 26, there comes a point in that text in which the Lord says He will give Israel all the promises that He gave to Abraham when they have prayed a confession. This is what it says. If they confess, this is speaking of Israel again, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness to me, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that then they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Remember, this is being spoken within the context of the Old Covenant. But he's talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. So here's what we just learned. Moses told the people of Israel in this Old Covenant that if the people of Israel collectively now, as a nation, recognized their sins of the Old Covenant and confessed their sins, they could be restored. But notice the form this confession must take. First, they have to confess their own sin, but they also have to confess the sin of their forefathers, Obviously, that's not a confession of faith because a confession of faith doesn't require that we confess our father's sin. This is a very different thing altogether. This is a national confession to get out from under the curses of the Old Covenant. This is a specific repudiation of Israel's violations of the Old Covenant. And Leviticus 26 says they have to confess their unfaithfulness to that covenant. And then lastly, they have to confess that they acted in hostility toward God. That's a very interesting statement. It means that Israel must confess that their forefathers crucified Jesus. That's what he means by acting in hostility against me. So, here's the confession that's required in Leviticus. If the nation of Israel is ever to get out from under the curses of the Old Covenant and receive the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant, they have to collectively come to an understanding that they have in fact violated their Old Covenant and more than that, that they crucified their Messiah. When they, that would mean, of course, that they understand Jesus is the Messiah. When the nation of Israel comes to that collective understanding, the Old Covenant is fulfilled, and the Abrahamic Covenant will be given to them. All the promises of that covenant. And by remember the covenant here, God does not mean he forgot it. That word just means to enact it or fulfill it, to come back to it. So the Lord is saying, I'll bring the fulfillment of that covenant. And what was promised in that covenant? Well, principally the kingdom that Israel would have a land of their own, that they would rule in peace and they would have all the blessings of that land and so many descendants you couldn't number them all living in that land. That's what Israel's still waiting for. In other words, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant means the arrival of the Messianic kingdom, the second coming of Christ. And that waits for Israel to appreciate that they have violated the old covenant and crucified Jesus. So with all of that, let's just review. I'm going to package it all now for you and we're going to move forward. Let's review everything that's running through Daniel's mind as a prophet who understands his old covenant. He just learned from Jeremiah that Israel is scheduled to return to the land after 70 years of exile. He didn't know how long the exile was going to be. He didn't know how long they were going to have to sit. He finds out, ah, 70 years. Those 70 years have now come to pass. So Daniel realizes the end of the exile is upon him. Furthermore, he remembers how the old covenant promised that there would be a period of exile and that it would take place because they violated the land Sabbaths. And all of this is making perfect sense to Daniel. So, as he learns that the exile is about to come to an end, Daniel assumes that Israel is also approaching the end of the Old Covenant. 
And that means the kingdom's about to arrive. And that means the age of the Gentiles is now coming to an end. That means everything he saw in his earlier visions is about to wrap up. You might have wondered, why didn't he think about the fact that there hadn't been four kingdoms yet? Maybe he assumed that four kings represented four kingdoms. Who knows to what degree he understood the length of time. It's clear that he didn't because he's ready to call an end to it. And so putting all this together, he begins to pray the Leviticus 26 prayer on behalf of the nation. A national confession. But friends, the problem is, you can't pray a national confession by yourself. Right? It has to be the nation praying it as well. It takes the entire nation of Israel to collectively and simultaneously come to this same understanding. If you want to read where God actually brings that to pass, it's in Zechariah chapter 12. And it's obviously a future event, even for us now. It has yet to happen. Meanwhile, we're going to go back to what's going on in Daniel's mind. Look at his thinking reflected in the final words of his prayer. In 15 through 19, he says, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, notice this, your city of Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our, notice, fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So you can get a sense here, Daniel's thinking back to the Exodus a little bit. The days when that old covenant was inaugurated. And he's thinking of that time and he declares, we're guilty, you're righteous, you brought judgment, take your wrath away and notice, take it away from the city. Now that would indicate that he's thinking about the age of the Gentiles. Remember that period called the age of the Gentiles is a period of time defined as the city being trampled and the temple desolate. So Daniel is asking the Lord to bring that time to an end. He repeats the plea again in verses 17 through 19 and all the way through to the end, he's asking for the city and the temple to be restored. Okay? There is a huge problem, obviously, in Daniel's interpretation of what he's read. He has assumed wrongly that two periods of judgment are one and the same. He has assumed that the age of the Gentiles is only 70 years. He's assumed Jeremiah's prophecy about the coming end of their exile in Babylon is also a prophecy of the coming end of the curses. And so he's thinking, I pray this prayer, we put the whole thing to rest. Unfortunately, none of those assumptions are correct. First of all, his confession is not the one Moses calls for in Leviticus 26. That's a national confession. Um, secondly, the kingdom is not about to arrive, unfortunately. And thirdly, the age of the Gentiles, which is taking place in parallel to this time of exile, is going to last a lot longer than the exile, than the 70 years. Okay? Because Daniel has been assigned by God the mission of explaining these things to Israel and to us, The Lord cannot afford for his prophet to get these things wrong. So the Lord intervenes in a very unique way here to offer Daniel correction. So we go now to Daniel 9, 20 through 23. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, 
Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel. I probably didn't sound like that, but I like that better. I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Pausing there for a minute. It's really a remarkable moment. Daniel praying, and he says, even while he's still in prayer, no less than the archangel Gabriel is dispatched to teach Daniel. Notice Daniel says he was praying and confessing the sin of both himself and that of his people. That would once again confirm that I think he's doing the Leviticus prayer. Now his goal is admirable, but his timing is way off. So he gets an A for effort because it says here he was up late at night. He's been praying till he was extremely weary. Uh, and by the way, that's quite a testimony for a man of his age, right? This is showing his faith here again, that he prays to the brink of exhaustion. So Daniel says that he is praying in this, as he's praying in this way, a man, he calls him, Gabriel, appears. Now this is the same, quote, man who appeared to Daniel in the visions of the prior chapter, chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he had visions or dreams of this man who we learned back then was actually an angel. Now he's not seeing him in a vision. This is interesting. He's actually seeing him. It makes sense that he would send Gabriel, actually, that the Lord would send Gabriel and not someone else. Because since Gabriel has been in Daniel's earlier dreams then that would mean if he appears again now in person, Daniel's going to know this is a supernaturally sent messenger, and so he's going to have no reason to doubt his word. It just makes the whole thing a lot faster. Right? Doesn't have to pull out his angel card and show his ID. He can just stand there. So when God needs to send an archangel to correct a person's understanding of Scripture, does that mean that the person is really important or just really wrong? Well, I think it's a little of both. <laughs> In this case, in verse 22, we're told Gabriel gives Daniel instructions so that Daniel would have insight with understanding. Now, the word insight in Hebrew could also be translated wisdom. So in this context, wisdom or insight would refer to the knowledge that God alone can reveal to us, a source of information that comes only from God. And that would then mean that understanding refers to a comprehension of that knowledge. So he's got to have the knowledge, the insight, and he's got to have the understanding of what he's been given. So that means Daniel's confusion is because he lacks two things here. First of all, he lacks some details. He did not have all the information that he needed to form the conclusions he was coming to. He only had some of the facts. He had some of what he knew, and he had some of what Jeremiah had given to him. But there was still more God could tell him and was prepared to tell him that would fill in some important gaps. And then the second thing Daniel lacks is that even when he did know what he knew from Moses or from Jeremiah, he misunderstood it. Daniel needed someone to explain the meaning of the things he already had. By the way, as an aside, Daniel's not unique in any of this. Every person who comes to God in his word is likely, if not inevitably, going to encounter these same two problems. Unless you've studied every word of the Bible and know it inside and out, you've probably lacked for some information that would help you. And that's why continual study is valuable. But, by that same token, if you're drawing conclusions about important matters without the full counsel of God's Word, be ready to be wrong. Because you're going to be, if not right away, sooner or later, because you're missing data. You're going at the answer before you have all the data. And then, secondly, even if you have all the data. Our ability to comprehend it is spirit-driven, spirit-permitted, and the Spirit of the Lord is not necessarily inclined 
to dump into our brains the full understanding of all of Scripture in an instant. In fact, it's self-evident he doesn't. He prefers that we work with him over time. So, again, if you haven't studied for very long or looked at things very deeply, you should also expect to be wrong at times because your understanding of what you've read won't be complete. And not everybody needs angelic beings to come explain things to them. You have me. (laughs) So, finally, it's... Those of you who are in my wife's Bible study, you do have an angelic being. And she's not here, but she'll hear it. All right. Finally, it's worth noting that verse 23 says the Lord sent Gabriel expressly to ensure that Daniel gets this right. So, friends, not everybody is a prophet authoring scripture, obviously. So perhaps because of that, you might assume, well, God only sends supernatural teachers to very important people like Daniel. But you would be wrong. Because think about it. For a while, Daniel received this little angelic visitor here and there a few times along the way. But you and I have the Spirit of God dwelling in us every day. And as Jesus said, our teacher will explain all things to us. So in every sense, you have a superior heavenly source for supernatural knowledge of what the Bible says with you constantly. Daniel only got a little bit here and there. If you ask Daniel if he'd like to trade what he had for what we had, I assure you he will trade because we have something superior. So now we come to the heart of the chapter. This is the main message of Daniel. Daniel receives a correct interpretation of the central mistake that he was making. And the central mistake was time. He was mistaking how long the age of the Gentiles would be. He thought it was only 70 years, but that's just the exile piece. Okay. So now we're going to understand how long is the age of the Gentiles going to be. Daniel 9.24 to the end of the chapter is Gabriel's explanation. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. It has been said that there is no single prophetic utterance in all the Bible more crucial in the fields of biblical interpretation, apologetics, and eschatology than this one passage I just read. It's no exaggeration to claim that this passage holds the key to understanding the entire sweep of Israel's prophetic history. And yet, it's written in a particularly difficult style, which makes interpretation a bit tricky. I found it easiest to understand when it's accompanied by a visual aid that I'm going to be making available for you here tonight and for anyone online. It's an essential part of the study uh, that you would want to get off the website. This explanation begins in verse 24 as Gabriel corrects Daniel's misunderstanding. So let's make sure we understand what he misunderstood. His misunderstanding was he thought the age of the Gentiles was only 70 years long. That's really the core issue that was messing him up. And that's why he thought the kingdom was about to come at the end of the exile. Okay? So Gabriel begins by telling Daniel, No, the age of the Gentiles is not 70 years, but rather 70 weeks. He says in verse 24, 70 weeks of judgment have been decreed, by God that is, for Israel. And, before we look at the number, 
Let's look at what it was intended to accomplish. He says, there are six things that it is intended to accomplish. First, he says, to finish the transgression. Notice this is a singular transgression. The, not transgressions. So this is not all of Israel's sin generally, but one particular sin. And that sin is the rejection of the Messiah. So the age of the Gentiles, remember, results in all Israel confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, that they were acting in hostility against him. That's what you would see if you go read Zechariah 12. You'll see the confession that they pray, acknowledging that they crucified their Messiah. That has to happen before the age of the Gentiles is over. Secondly, it will put an end to sin generally in Israel. The age of the Gentiles leads Israel to a point of sinlessness. And friends, that would have to mean then that Israel will be living in glorified, resurrected bodies. For that's the only way you get sinless. So that means, again, the kingdom has come. Third, the age will serve as Israel's atonement for their sin. That is, under the old covenant. This is what Leviticus explained, right? They're going to have to atone for their failure to keep that covenant by having to endure a bunch of curses. Those curses, collectively, are the age of the Gentiles. Fourth, the age will lead to or bring in everlasting righteousness. That's a clear reference to the kingdom. So this agrees with Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, right? That when the age of the Gentiles is over, we have the kingdom. We have Jesus here and the kingdom set up. Fifth, it will cause the sealing up of prophecy. Sealing up means the ending of something, the closing off of it. Presumably, that would tell us that there will be a putting away of prophecy in the time of the kingdom because there will be no longer a need for it since we all will have knowledge of all things in our resurrected state. And then sixth, A new temple will be anointed in Jerusalem. That will be the millennial kingdom temple, the one in which Jesus himself will reside in the time of the thousand-year reign. All of these things are accomplished by the conclusion of the age of the Gentiles. This is confirming everything we've already learned. And moreover, these events are going to be used by God to bring about all these good things for Israel. So obviously they're blessed in the end, but in the meantime, they've got to suffer to get there. That's God's plan. And he's going to use their enemies to accomplish that suffering. Gentile nations are going to create the conditions under which all this suffering takes place. Now, how long will Israel have to wait for all of these things to finish up? That's the core question, right? Gabriel said 70 weeks, but that doesn't make any sense. By the time Daniel received this revelation, the age of the Gentiles had already been going on for much longer than 490 days, which is what 70 weeks would be. But a closer examination of the Hebrew word that we have translated weeks will clear up the confusion. Most of you probably already know this, that the word in Hebrew for weeks is Shabbat. And Shabbat in Hebrew literally means seven. just means seven. So we have weeks really should have been translated sevens. So Gabriel literally said there'll be 77s for Israel. That just makes it all the more confusing, right? Now we need to figure out what 77 stands for. Is it 70 of seven days or 70 of seven months or 70 of seven years? You see the problem, right? So we have to figure out what he's talking about. Well, the way we come to a conclusion is two ways. First, traditionally, Israel only uses the word Shabbat to refer to a group of seven days or seven years. They don't use it for the other two. It's, there's, there's no... There's no tradition for that. There's no context for doing that. That would be a very odd way to number something. And clearly, the length of the age of the Gentiles cannot be just 70 times 7 days. That's barely 18 months. And then lastly, Daniel thought it was 70 years, remember? 
in reading Jeremiah, he came to the conclusion 70 years. We have to assume then Gabriel is pivoting off of that thought. He's saying, no, Daniel, it's not 70 years, it's 77s of years would be the implication. He's using the same idea that Daniel started with, and he's just multiplying it times 70. All right? So that would tell us that we're actually looking at 70 times 7 years, or 490 years for this period called the Age of the Gentiles. Now, let's start putting some time, some markers on a timeline. We know that the period of the Age of the Gentiles began with the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, conquering the city of Jerusalem, which we know is 605 B.C. So all that we have to do now is just count forward 490 years and we arrive at Christ's second coming, right? No, not exactly. Because Gabriel gives us more details to complicate this interpretation considerably. In verse 25, Gabriel begins to count out the 490 years in several increments. And as he does this, he gives us historical markers, like distance markers along a highway. And they act as anchors for us in time. Those anchors will help us keep track of the passing of those 490 years. And so by following what he says carefully and observing the text carefully, we're going to figure out where the 490 years takes us. So we know it starts at 605 B.C. That's given to us in Daniel. Jeremiah tells us, as I said, that the first 70 years of it is a period of exile that's payback for all those lost Sabbaths that they should have had in the land. Okay? After those 70 years, then Israel is permitted to return to their land. And Daniel did the math while he was listening to or reading Jeremiah, and he recognized they were at the 70th point. And it will be Cyrus, who will be that king uh, of Persia, who is going to issue the decree that is going to allow Israel to return to their land and rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. And so now Daniel is learning this now from Jeremiah. All right, so following the 70 years of exile, there's, as I said, going to be another 490 years. The decree that we're talking about here is in Cyrus, is in Second Chronicles, very end of Second Chronicles 36.22. I'll just read it to you. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, there it is, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all the people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So Gabriel says that when Cyrus issues this decree, we start the clock on the 490 years. But, and this is why it's so complicated, Gabriel cuts up this period of 490 years into segments. And in typical Hebrew form, in writing form, These segments are intertwined. In Greek form, we would keep them very separate. We'd go A, B, C, D, and that would be it. But in Hebrew form, they intertwine them in a way that you have to unravel. So in verse 25, Gabriel lists three events, or I'm going to call them time markers, okay? And he lists two spans of time measured in these periods of sevens. Three time markers two periods of time. So then logically, the two spans of time fit in between the three time markers. You see how this is going to work? So let's, let's list them out. The first event is the decree to rebuild the temple. That has a certain span associated with it. The second event is the cutting off of Messiah. And the third event is the completion of the temple. The two spans of time are seven sevens and 62 sevens. Logically, they separate the three events. And in part by the grammar, but also because of history, 
We know how to decode this puzzle. From the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we know that Israel took 49 years to complete the temple construction, including the city walls, from the day that the decree to rebuild was issued by Cyrus. So between the decree of Cyrus and the date the walls were finished, you in fact find seven sevens, just as Gabriel said you would. 49 years. History confirms the prophecy. Then we know, it says, that from when the wall is finished until Messiah is cut off, there will be 62 weeks. So the total of that is 62 sevens plus seven sevens is 483 year period. Therefore, the time from the completion of the wall until the time of Jesus' death will be 62 sevens or 483 years. Cut off, by the way, in Hebrew just means to put an end to something, to kill or to take away something. So now we need to ask ourselves, can we date the year of Jesus' death from the date given in Daniel's prophecy? Well, based on an analysis of the Gospels, and we don't have time tonight for me to walk you through how I do this. It's online if you're interested. But based on an analysis of the Gospels and astronomical records, we can determine Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 5 B.C. and he died in April of A.D. 27. If you count backward by that 483 years, you arrive at 456 B.C. So you have 483 years for these 69 sevens and we know he died in A.D. 27. So if I back up 483 years from A.D. 27, I arrive at 456 B.C. Well, we learned in Second Chronicles that the decree issued by Cyrus came in his first year. And by the calendar that is traditionally used for ancient history, the first year of Cyrus's rule is, drumroll, not 456. The common calendar places an additional 82 years in that timeline because our common calendar today says Cyrus came to power in 538 BC. So is the Bible wrong? If I ever ask that question in a Bible study, there's always just one answer to that question, right? Well, where did historians get their date for Cyrus's rule? Our calendar for ancient rulers is largely based on a timeline that's called Ptolemy's Canon. Ptolemy's Canon. Ptolemy was an ancient Greek astrologer who developed a timeline of ancient rulers based on his analysis of astronomical references you could find in ancient texts, like when a full moon happened or an eclipse happened or something. And he tried to calculate based on the movement of the stars and, and planets when those events might have happened in history. His canon is the only scientific assessment of ancient events that we have. And therefore, it is served as the authority for all ancient dating. So is the Bible wrong or perhaps is Ptolemy wrong? Well, simply put, there is no reason to accept Ptolemy's dating scheme above the Word of God. In fact, David Cooper, Dr. David Cooper, made the following assessment of Ptolemy's accuracy as a historian. He wrote this, Ptolemy was a great constructive genius. He was the author of the Ptolemaic system of astronomy. He was one of the founders of the science of geography. But in chronology, he was only a late compiler and contriver, not an original witness and not a contemporary historian. He lived in the second century after Christ. He is the only authority for the chronology of this period. He is not corroborated, and he is contradicted, both by Persian national traditions and by the Jewish national traditions preserved in their ancient writings and by the writings of Josephus. As Cooper points out, the Ptolemy canon of dates doesn't have much to commend it except its popular acceptance. It doesn't agree with Josephus, doesn't agree with ancient Persian or Jewish references, and, most importantly, it doesn't agree with the Bible. 
So as a matter of faith, we hold that the biblical record is correct and Ptolemy got it wrong by 82 years. I don't expect to see the biblical dates reflected in anybody's common historical record, right? The world uh, doesn't believe in the Bible's creation account. They prefer to believe in Darwin's fable. Likewise, they don't believe in the Bible's chronology. They prefer to believe in what Ptolemy came up with. Nevertheless, let's go back to the angel. The angel tells Daniel that after the Messiah is cut off, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. That destruction, he says, will come like a flood, which is the way the Bible talks about a huge army rolling into town quickly. And not only will the city be destroyed after Jesus is cut off, but the temple will be desolated, he says as well, at the end of verse 26. We know when all that happened. It happened in A.D. 70, following Jesus' death and resurrection. The city of Jerusalem was overrun by Rome. The temple was destroyed completely. But notice, and this is curious at first, the angel doesn't associate this event with any of the sevens. It feels like TMI. Like, you know, that's a lot of extra information, but... Why do I need that? That's not part of a time marker. The overrunning of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans is not a time marker in the 77s. Why did he include it then? The mention of Jerusalem's destruction is included for one reason. It gives context for the final seven of those 77s. Notice in verse 26. The people who destroy the city are the people of the prince who is to come. The people who destroyed the city are obviously the Romans. They are more than just Romans, though. They are people of the fourth kingdom. They are people of the fourth of those kingdoms in the age of the Gentiles. These people, the fourth kingdom people, let's call them, the fourth kingdom people will one day produce a prince. And that prince is the key actor in verse 27, which is the final seven. The prince will be the prince of the final stage of the fourth kingdom. That's important because what he's telling us is this prince who is to come is not part of the second kingdom or the third kingdom. You're going to have to wait for the fourth kingdom before the final seven is going to take place in history. The events of chapter 20, of verse 27 then are associated only with the final beast, the fourth kingdom. Who is this prince? Well, uh, he is the same man you and I studied earlier in chapter 8. He is the Antichrist. He is the final ruler of the fourth kingdom. We come to this understanding principally by returning to our time markers. Notice that in our count so far, you've got 483 where you're missing seven. We're trying to figure out where's the last seven because at the end of that last seven, what happens? Christ comes back, right? All the good things start to happen. We know that all but the last seven had already come to pass by the time Jesus dies. And yet here we are some 2,000 years after Jesus' death and we're still waiting for the second coming of Christ. So how can we have gone 2,000 years when all we had was seven years left? Well, take a look at the time markers Gabriel gave us again. There were 49 years between Cyrus and the walls completed, right? There were 434 years between the walls completed and the death of Jesus. We're missing that last seven. When that last seven runs out, Jesus returns. And in verse 27... He says that the last seven will happen when a firm covenant is made for one week. We have a time marker here to start the final seven. It is a covenant being made with the many by that prince. It lasts for one week. Notice, though, there is no connection between that event and the death of Jesus in the text. There's no connecting of the two in the language of the text. That final seven-year period that begins with the covenant is just literally floating out there rhetorically. It's not connected to any prior event. The other ones always had a connection. From until, from until. This one is not from anything, it's just there. That separation tells us, friends, that there is a gap in the timeline where before the earlier 483 years ran consecutively, 
Now, the final seven is hanging out there somewhere in the future, not connected to the prior 483. There is a gap of time in between. If you will, the clock is on pause while the world waits for the prince to make this covenant. Together, it will give us the 77s when it finally comes to pass. And at the start of that covenant, the clock is going to begin to run again. The final seven years will run out, and that will lead us into Christ's second coming and the inauguration of the kingdom. So, what is this covenant, and who are the many who make it with the prince? Well, Gabriel doesn't explain the covenant. But he does give us a very big clue, and from this clue, we're able to infer what the covenant is all about. Whatever the covenant it will be, it's a covenant that permits sacrifice and grain offering, verse 27 says. And Gabriel says the prince who makes this covenant with the many will, at a later point, stop the things that he allowed in the first place. Therefore, the natural conclusion that we're making, the inference we have to make is, this covenant permitted uh, permitted the many, whoever they are, to perform sacrifice and grain offering. And then at the midpoint, it says, of that seven years, which would be three and a half years, the one who made the covenant, the prince, will violate that covenant by putting an end to those very practices. That's enough of, a, of detail right there for us to deduce the rest. We're talking about sacrifice and grain offering. Well, then we know we must be talking about the Jewish temple where these things take place. That's where you do sacrifice and grain offering. And if the covenant permitted this to take place, then it means that the many must be the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, who desire the right to sacrifice on their temple mount. They are the many and not the all, presumably because some of the Jewish people are not going to desire to participate in this covenant. They're going to see it as a bad thing and have no part in it. Putting all that together and taking what we learned in chapter 8, here's what you can now say. The prince, being the Antichrist, is a man who comes to rule the world in the last days of the fourth kingdom in the age of the Gentiles. Remember we said in chapter 8 that he comes to power at the midpoint of that seven-year period of tribulation. The seven-year period we call tribulation. That seven-year period then must correspond to this final week of Daniel's 490 years. This final seven-year period. And we now know that the seven years will begin when this man, the prince, this antichrist, brokers a covenant to permit Israel to return to their temple and sacrifice again. Today that mount is controlled by the Arabs of Jordan and they would never allow Israel to do any such thing. So it's going to require a very powerful, very prestigious world leader who can negotiate an opportunity for Israel to do this very thing. That's still to come. Then at the midpoint of tribulation which, remember, was a time, times and half a time, or 42 months, etc., then the Antichrist will suspend those sacrifices. We see that being referenced here as well, putting a stop to the sacrifices. We learned last time that at this point, at the midpoint of the seven years, that's when the Antichrist dies, if you remember, at the hands of those three of the kings who come against him, the three horns that take, try to take out the Antichrist, the eleventh. And yet, he will be resurrected by the power of Satan, at which point he will assume control of the entire world government. Paul says the Antichrist, at that point, will seat himself in the Jewish temple, which has been rebuilt for sacrifice, and call himself God, and demand that the world worship him instead. Gabriel confirms this event in verse 27, when he says the prince will not only suspend the sacrifice, but then it says he will commit an abomination on the wing. The word wing in in Hebrew is a euphemism for the highest part of the temple. And by being at the highest part, it really represents an overshadowing of the whole. So a wing of abomination refers to an abomination over and above all of the temple. That's what the Antichrist will do. He will have literally Satan indwelling him. He will go into God's temple and sit on God's throne calling himself God. 
That is a desolation of the temple. It's the same one Jesus talked about in Matthew when he said in Matthew twenty four fifteen, speaking of this same moment, he said, When you see the abomination of desolation, notice, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, which is what we just studied, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And then he ends by saying, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And do you recognize that phrase? Remember remember that Daniel was praying that very thought out of Daniel 9? He was believing that he was seeing the penultimate tribulation in his day in Babylon, when in fact there's something even greater still coming. For Israel. Reminder, by the way, that if you interpret the Bible through your personal experience, you're going to get it wrong. You need to interpret your personal experience through the Bible. And the fact that some people go through some really bad things we call tribulation doesn't mean they're actually in the tribulation. So Jewish believers in the city, Jesus said, should flee at this point because some really bad stuff is about to break out in the last three and a half years. But as that period ends, we know the age of the Gentiles comes to an end. So Gabriel says... A complete destruction will come upon the one who desolated the temple. And with it, Gentile rule over Israel will finally be over after 70 years of exile plus another 490 years of judgment plus this even longer period of time while the countdown has been paused. So that's the final thought for the night, friends. Why does the Lord pause the clock on this 490 year period in the first place? Why need a pause? Uh, By the way, in the Old Testament, Israel was never told of the pause explicitly. We only see it here inferred through Gabriel's explanation because we have the hindsight to know of it. Otherwise, I doubt we would necessarily see it either. That final seven years of the 490 isn't connected, so that's what made a gap possible, but it wasn't ever specified. So why does God have a gap in time that he never told his own people about that seems to be ongoing even now? Well, that pause is made necessary because of something that God said to Abraham. He said in Genesis 12:3, when he gave Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Lord promised to bless the entire world through the promises he gave to Abraham's descendants, to Israel. The church is the vehicle that the Lord is using to reach all of the nations as he promised. He needs time to do that. In other words, he needs time when he's not otherwise obligated to bring these things to Israel in order to bring them to all the nations. For if he brings them to Israel, it would mean bringing Israel to the kingdom, which would mean bringing Israel to the kingdom without us. So he needs reason to stop giving them that promised outcome, at least for a time, so that he can give it to another group instead. But at some point, he's going to keep his word. He has to return to Israel. That's that final seven that he's going to give Israel, the final opportunity. In a day to come, that gap will close and the Lord will start counting down his judgment for Israel with the final seven years from the moment a covenant is struck. So with that, Daniel has now been given the correction of the angel. He knows that Israel's time in exile is coming to an end, yes. But their judgment under the age of the Gentiles has only just begun and it won't end until all those Gentile kingdoms have come and all those numerous curses have been poured out culminating with the worst of the worst in the last three and a half years of the last kingdom of this age. God starts with an age in which through David and Solomon he lets Israel have a kingdom, a precursor kingdom, if you will, to the one that he eventually will give them. But they were on top for a while. And then because they failed to keep the Old Covenant, God had good reason, just reason, 
to put them aside for a time, to put them under Gentile authority, and open up the door for Gentiles to be given an opportunity to know Him. The Old Covenant is conditional. If they don't keep it, they get punished. The Abrahamic Covenant, though, is not conditional. It's unconditional. God's obligated to do good things for them, regardless. So, He starts here, gives them the penalties of the Old Covenant so that the church can have its opportunity. But because... The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. He will then eventually come back and give the promised kingdom to Israel. So what's the reason the old covenant exists? So that God has just cause to set aside his own people for a time so that he can make room for you and I. Everything he does is by covenant. And he gave them an old covenant that was going to force them into punishment because they could not keep it. But he gave them a chance to say no to it. But they said yes, and that, of course, was in God's keeping as well. But he, he freely gave them the opportunity. That's, that's the wisdom of God does. This is essentially dispensational theology. An understanding of how God is moving through history to open doors for some people, close them for others, and then yet keep all his promises to all his covenants collectively across time. Father, thank you, Lord, for, well, for grace, for giving us an opportunity to know you, Father. I mean, how can we sit and talk about what we've done to know you when we look at a plan like this and we understand how much of it has been done for us for so long by moving kingdoms in and out of power, by putting your own people underneath oppression if that were, you know, for that would seem to be the only way that you could open a door for us. Um, I wonder Paul exclaims at the end of chapter 11 in Romans that he is overwhelmed with the riches of the grace of God. So are we. Thank you, Father, for this study and bring us back to finish it in the weeks to come. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.